Welcome to Classical Education, a podcast for those who believe in rediscovering the art of asking questions, engaging in conversation, and attending to the ideas at the heart of well-ordered teaching and learning. Adrian Fries and Trey Bailey invite you to join them on a journey in pursuit of the true, the good, and the beautiful as we participate in the great conversation and listen to the many voices coming from the world of classical education. Today I have uh, some very special guests here to talk about teaching Latin in classical schools. Dr. Laura Eit, a good friend from the University of Dallas, and Dr. Patrick M. Owens, highly recommended to join us on our podcast today by Laura. And I would like each of you, Laura and Patrick, to introduce yourself and tell our listeners a little bit of your background and your passion for Latin. Laura, why don't you go ahead and start? Okay, sure. So I am um, an assistant professor of modern languages and humanities at the University of Dallas. Uh, I've been here for 15 years, actually. And I primarily teach German and Spanish as well as humanities courses, uh, humanities courses for our classical education graduate program. Um, I'm also the faculty advisor for our classical curriculum team. I help them with uh, the professional development that they do. And I'm also currently writing a Latin curriculum for K to fifth grade for our classical curriculum team. I've always been really interested in learning languages. I've learned a bunch in my life myself. And one of my main areas of interest is foreign language pedagogy, including especially early childhood language acquisition. So that's what drove me into the area of developing curricula for, um, for the younger ages. Patrick, go ahead. Thank you, Adrian. I'm grateful to join you and Laura on your podcast. I'm a professor of, of classics. Specifically, I'm a, a Latinist. I began my study of Latin when I was in high school, though uh, admittedly, I was a, a very poor Latin student at the outset. But once the interest took hold, it was all encompassing. I completed a, a bachelor's degree in classics at Fordham University, and I moved to Italy to study with some of the greatest Latinists where I could learn to, to speak Latin. Subsequently, I, I completed a master's and a PhD in classics. For a few years, I ran the Latin program at Wyoming Catholic College. And over about 20 years, I've taught classics at all levels from kindergarten parochial school to graduate students and graduate seminars. My approach to teaching classical languages attracted some attention. And as a result, I am a uh, a consultant. I'm, I'm asked to consult for schools, particularly classical schools, parochial schools, and new foundations on curricular development and teacher training, since administrators and even Latin teachers often don't have experience in the active language pedagogy. Mm -hmm. So in, in a nutshell, uh, and I guess this is something we'll talk about today. My pedagogy relies on a communicative approach where the instructor and students speak and hear Latin in the classroom instead of a more um, traditional approach replete with tables, diagrams, grammar translation, um, meta-linguistic meta commentary. Uh, anyway, I'm president of the American Association for Neo-Latin Studies, editor of the journal Neo-Latin News, and compiler of a Neo-Latin lexicon. This is amazing. I'm so excited about this conversation. Um, I'm going to start with Laura. And uh, Patrick, feel free to jump in at any time. Uh, and Laura, before we jump into discussing Latin, you and I have had many discussions at UD about the trivium and what classical education is. Can you explain for our listeners what we mean when we say the term classical education? Okay, yes, that's a good way to start. Um, yeah, so I would define classical education as basically a liberal education that focuses on the transcendentals, and by that we mean truth, goodness, and beauty. Um, and I would say that is in a position to a more practical vocational training 
It is also an education that focuses on developing children's moral and intellectual virtues. So not just excellent academics, but also an education that seeks to shape their hearts and minds, an education that uh, focuses on, um, on the habits, on, on fostering good tastes, uh, good character, through basically through a very rich and ordered course of study that is grounded in the liberal arts of the trivium and the quadrivium. Well, that's, a, that's great. Patrick, do you have anything to add to that in your experience? Well, a classical education um, focuses also on the tradition that comes down to us from antiquity. Certainly, we call it a classical education because it is the prototypical education that we receive from antiquity through the medieval period, um, com comprising, of course, those arts of the, the trivium and the quadrivium, but also having as its object for, of study literature from the ancient world, the greatest of the Western canon. Mm -hmm. Very good, very good. Yeah, um, I like that you bring in the, the medieval aspect there. And then I think, especially with regard to Latin teaching, we could also go further and talk about the Renaissance and the Renaissance humanist tradition of teaching and learning languages. Um, just to go back to earlier when you said that you don't teach the traditional way, I thought that was kind of interesting that you used traditional for um, <laughs> that. Do you want to explain that? You got bit? me. There's an, there's an inconsistency there. Yeah, I, I, I always, uh, I, I use scare quotes. You can't see scare quotes, unfortunately, <laughs> on a podcast. But I use scare quotes around the word traditional when I describe what is uh, the, the method of Latin education in classrooms today, because I think, Laura, this is what you're getting at. It's not actually all that traditional. It doesn't go back more than, uh, say, uh, 150 or uh, 200 years. The traditional, the, the genuine, authentic traditional approach is something much more like the, the humanists and the, the Renaissance approach, uh, which has its roots all the way back in, in antiquity. Mm -hmm. Laura, do you want to share more about that as well? I, I think you were interested in talking about that. Oh, yes, absolutely. Yes. I mean, basically just, uh, yeah, what uh, Patrick was, was saying, that in the Renaissance humanist traditions, uh, tradition, students were required to actively use it. They weren't just drilled on forms, but they were actively using the language. Mm -hmm. And um, really throughout probably the 1800s, that was, that was the traditional way of teaching Latin. Students were required to speak, read, and write the language. Um, mm -hmm. There's some interesting documents about entrance requirements, um, even in un universities in the US in the 1800s, where students had to turn a page of English at sight into Latin. So that requires really a very immersive teaching method. You can't just look at a page of English and translate that into Latin at sight if you haven't been trained in very active pedagogical methods. Yeah, actually, this is a great bridge for talking a little bit about the trivium and neo, the neoclassical movement. Um, people who are on our Facebook page know that I'm very passionate about helping define um, what is classical education based on really the medieval and looking back at antiquity. Um, what, is the what is classical education versus what is the neoclassical movement that we're in today that has done a lot of great work? Um, the revival that we're in with classical education, um, it, you know, credits to those people who have, have really been trying to uncover um, the tradition in the real sense of tradition. And um, in that, we've had a lot of modern interpretations and this neoclassical movement that really does focus on more of a drill method um, through what I believe is a misinterpretation of Dorothy Sayre's essay, and has um, not that there's anything wrong with her essay, it was an idea, but she never intended for her essay to be a foundation of how schools were developed, where they would segment grammar, logic, and rhetoric into grades of cognitive development. And I think this whole drill method uh, does stem a lot from, from that, from that. And so, <clears throat> Laura, some of the work you and I've done on the trivium, um, we look, we wanted to look back at what is the trivium as an art versus trivium as stages of cognitive development. 
Um, do you want to talk a little bit about that? And Patrick, your, your experience as well on defining what an art really is. That would be great to hear from both of you. Yeah, actually, Patrick, if you don't mind starting with that, I think that would be a good starting point, this idea of art. Sure, sure, Laura. Uh, thank you. Um, so the, the trivium, when it's conceptualized as an art, uh, only really makes sense if we mean art in that context, qua ars, that is qua the, the Latin word for, for art, ours. And I say that because when most of our audience thinks of the word art, especially if they think of the word uh, art in terms of an educational community or a, a classroom, the audience will, will imagine either an art project or studying art history, maybe crayons, maybe finger paints. But in reality, the trivium is not at all that kind of art. It is, it is an ars, uh, and in Latin, ars means much more than art. It means a a skill um, of, of of combining or joining something, a skill of working something, a, a handicraft, an an occupation of mind, of soul, of spirit. It can certainly be a, a physical occupation, but more often than not. And ours is a physical and mental activity that is practiced and exhibited in a, in a professional way, in a, in a serious manner. And so certain ours, certain artes are also music, poetry, medicine. In this way, we can conceive of the trivium as an art, as an ours. It doesn't really make much sense in, in any other way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I love that, um, that definition. Yes. Would you say that, um, Patrick, would you say that the concept of grammar as it was used um, is also different than our idea of grammar today? Great point. Yeah. So uh, very often we'll say grammar. And if, if our audience is, is thinking of grammar in the sense of uh, gr grammatical rules simply, uh, or the, um, diagramming of sentences that's a, a different use of the word grammar than we might mean when we're when we use grammar uh encompassing this the study of literature mm -hmm. yeah i think that's uh that's i think that's really interesting um i'm thinking about I'm, i don't remember which uh in, in quintilian um he talks about what the grammarian what the grammar teacher would teach a child and it is not grammar, right? It is the art of reading. Right. It is the art of interpreting symbols. It is really so much more than what we would think about when we think of the word grammar. Uh, so I think, yeah, I think the terminology is very misleading if we think of the trivium as, as grammar just being facts and drills and um, labeling things and memorizing isolated pieces of information. That's really not what, what the art of grammar encompasses. Right. Well, we're going to bring this back up uh, as we get into the into this episode and talk a little bit more about some of the curriculum that you're working on. Laura, before we do that, Patrick, you mentioned that you are often asked, what can a parent do to help their child become interested in Latin or Greek? So how do you typically respond to this question? I imagine some of our listeners may also have this question. Sure. Thank you for bringing that up. It, it, it happens frequently that parents will will uh, will be persuaded of the the benefits of a classical education. They'll be persuaded that their children should learn Latin, perhaps Latin and Greek. And so they'll say, well, what what can I do to foster an interest? How can I get my my children engaged in this? And the answer that I have, for, for parents who find themselves in this situation it is much like the, the answer that they receive from teachers of, of reading. Namely, if you want your child to be excited about Latin, about classical learning, or frankly about reading, the best thing to do is to read in front of them, is to demonstrate, not through words, but through actions, that this endeavor, this engagement is worthy of your time as an adult. Because let's face it, 
all children want to become adults. All children think that in adulthood they will be free, they will uh, they will be powerful, they will be able to direct their own lives. And it, it's unfortunate that our children want our children want to grow up faster than they need to, but it's the reality of, of childhood. And so when children see their parents engaged in a mental activity, they equate that activity with adulthood. And they think that is something that I want to do because I want to become an adult. So if you have a, a child at home and you want that child to, to learn Latin, well, the best thing you can do is to either learn Latin if you don't know it or read Latin on your own, on the couch, in the evening, when, you're, when your children are at play or at leisure, demonstrate that your leisure is spent in reading great literature, ideally in Latin. What kind of resources do you recommend for parents that, that don't have a clue? Well, for parents who, who, who don't have a clue, I, I guess there, there are lots of resources because the, the, the greatest benefit of not having a clue is that they, there's, there's the, the potential is, uh, is vast. Okay. Um, parent, parents who want to learn some Latin have more options today than perhaps they've ever had before because in the last few years, especially thanks to the, the pandemic, the cottage industry of online Latin tutorials or Latin classes has really exploded. There are some wonderful outfits, and I'll name just a few here. Um, there's Scola Latina, there's Vivarium Novum, uh, Paideia, uh, Vetrum Sapientia. All of these institutes offer high quality instruction in Latin over the internet for adults. Yeah, that's that's really good. I'm going to make sure to put these um, in the show notes so that if you have links, we can add those links into the show notes and anybody who wants to do some more research will do that. And I'm sure, Latin, um, Laura, do you also have any um, resources? That yeah, you I, mean, I just what Patrick was just saying. I actually, my when I first learned Latin, that was actually because I was intending or thinking I could homeschool my children. Um, I wasn't successful in homeschooling my children, but I think I was a little bit more successful in learning a little bit of Latin. That was my original purpose. Our Latin was the last language of the languages that I learned, that I stuck with it. I didn't stick with homeschooling. <laughs> but um, yes, I think that's a really good point that that it's you demonstrate to your children what what you find important. You demonstrate your values. And I think I would also add to that, uh, present them with content that's interesting. Present them with, with something that's interested, interesting. You don't have to convince your, your children to do something that they find interesting. And if you treat Latin like a human language, which it is, um, like a means of communication between human beings, a language that you can use to communicate ideas, then they will find that interesting. Um, That's a great point, Laura. Sorry, I didn't mean to step over you there. <laughs> it's okay. I, I yeah, no, to... I mean, just to, yeah, just to, uh, a little bit more, uh, if you treat it like a, like, like a dead thing to be dissected and analyzed you're really you're taking the life out of it and i think it's the same way if we get children first interested in the animal world for example we first want them to observe a frog we want them to see how a frog hops and how a frog um, catches its prey before we dissect the frog and analyze the frog mm -hmm. so i would say put the experience of, of handling of, of being in and with the language first before you dissect and analyze it yeah, and Laura, in our conversations when I was at UD, one of the things I really love about your approach for developing this uh, K-5 Latin curriculum that we're going to talk a little more about is that you've developed this for the parent, the teacher who has no Latin background, and you've pulled in amazing, wonderful stories that we are all familiar with as parents. Like as a parent, I, I, was it the Very Hungry Caterpillar is maybe one of the books, mm -hmm. you know, that part of this curriculum is reading the very hungry caterpillar in Latin. I mean, like, that's pretty easy to, to figure out because we all know the English version of it. So mm -hmm. in my mind, that the busy homeschool mom, the busy classroom teacher who doesn't have maybe time to go into the depths of Latin can be, can actually model humility, which is a virtue we want as teachers. 
model humility by learning Latin from nursery rhymes and storybooks along with their children. Mm -hmm. I think that's an absolute brilliant way for the busy parent, the busy um, teacher to begin learning Latin is with, with your program. I absolutely love your program. We're going to talk more about it. Um, <laughs> but before we do, I would like to ask what should be the role of Latin foreign languages in classical schools? Like tell us the big picture and give us the why, why does it matter? I wonder if perhaps you could tell our listeners a bit about the history of Latin education as well, both of you. Um, okay, so the big picture and the why. Maybe I think first we could start with um, what not, <laughs> with, with the not, because I think very often it is treated more as something that you do for because it gives you excellent mental training and um, it's SAT preparation. It makes you smarter, it improves your vocabulary, your grammar and all of that. Um, and I, I, that relates to what we were just saying about um, what Patrick was saying about um, the intrinsic motivation and um, also the idea that I mentioned that speaking a language is intrinsically human and speaking any human language is a means of communication, a means of communicating ideas to, to each other. And um, so language in the, the history of, of Latin teaching, Latin has been treated as such, uh, and I think Patrick mentioned that earlier, that in uh, Renaissance humanism, uh, students learned to learn to use Latin as a means of communication, and um, it was it was the language of instruction, not just something that students learned about, but also that students learned to use and to to produce, especially. Um, Patrick, do you want to add to that? Sure, yeah. Um, the, the, the quintessential Renaissance education was the Jesuit education. So the Jesuit education starting in the, um, say the middle of the 16th century has as its foundation classical learning. The, the, the student is immediately immersed in Latin and the greatest literature of the Latin language and then gradually uh, introduced to Greek and um, subject matter like rhetoric, dialectic, uh, scripture, theology, so on and so forth. And while the the, the, the Protestants didn't entirely um, adopt the 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 Jesuit approach, they did use it as a as a model. And so, no matter what side of the, the Tiber uh, or the Rhine you were on, uh, Renaissance education was a classical education. And from really the age of, of seven, students, mostly boys, but students were speaking Latin, hearing Latin, reading Latin. And so it was the central point of the entire education. Now, education has, has changed dramatically, of course. It goes without saying that uh, the, the the disciplines that we value for good reasons and bad have changed dramatically since the high point of humanism. However, the efficacy of that model, the efficacy namely of immersing the student in the language as the target language rem remains the same. Uh, and th this should come as no surprise because we do this in modern languages. We do this in modern languages and in modern languages when this is done seriously and, and uh, appropriately, this is met with, with good outcomes. Um, now, of, of course, in the US, we generally do foreign languages pretty badly. Uh, I, I hope mm. that's not a surprise to uh, much of our audience. Um, <laughs> however, in environments where immersive language is used, um, it, it, it's, it's a su successful approach. There's simply no, no denying that. And it, it stands to reason. I mean, we learn our primary language. Uh, for most of our listeners, that will be English. We learn our, our primary language, English, in the same way, by being immersed in it. And so we ought to ask ourselves, well, if, if the successful outcomes for second language learning 
in the modern languages is through immersion. If if you and I learned our mother tongue through immersion, why is it that we would out of hand so immediately reject immersion for the study of, of classical languages? And therein is our sort of our conundrum. Yeah. Um, it is the standard. Uh, the standard mode for teaching classical languages is not to speak it, not to use it, not to hear it, to only see it on the page. Right, right. I'm really glad you got, you're emphasizing the immersion. Um, as a parent, um, when I was homeschooling my children, I didn't know how to do that because I didn't know languages. I took French in high school. I don't remember any French. <laughs> it was very difficult. It was the chart method. <laughs> yeah. And filling in the charts and, you know, I don't even remember the terminologies we used. It is just very boring. And French is a beautiful language. In my opinion, I think it's beautiful. Yes. And I, I wish I knew it. So I, I'm really happy that you're bringing this up and emphasizing it because I don't, I, I, I suppose it's, it, it goes back to why our education model in this country is the way it is. It's all very much about the usefulness of prepping our students for college. I mean, one of the big one of the big selling points for classical schools often is they learn Latin and it's going to help them test better on the SAT, right? Mm -hmm. Or if they want to go to medical school, it's going to help them, you know, pass the medical school tests because they know Latin. <laughs> and so I really appreciate that you're bringing the beauty in because immersing, immersing our students into the language brings life to it. It's a living language. It's not dead. And there's no reason to make it more dead than it is right? in our schools, right? Let's bring it alive again. Let's bring it back to life. And so I want to I wanna jump in here and begin talking with Laura about why starting Latin in K, you know, kindergarten, why, why uh, K-5, and what does it mean to teach language classically to these young children in this way, in this immersion way? Can you give us some um, hows and whys? that this program you've developed would work? Yes, absolutely. So, I mean, really, it's the perfect age is as early as possible, um, especially because young children, I mean, they, they soak it up and they are not shy. They want to, they want to communicate in it when you give them uh, the, the ability to do so. They are not going to be... Um, as hesitant as older learners. So I think that's that's why it's a great, uh, great place to start. And um, that's also why the immersion method will work so well because they can learn it as naturally as a child who is, for example, growing up learning Russian will also pick up the cases by being exposed to them. One issue that I wanted to bring up, um, we, we talked about, uh, Patrick talked about uh, the immersion method and, and the efficiency and, and efficacy, and I would totally agree with that. One problem is that it does take a lot of, uh, a lot of exposure to the language. So students need to hear or older students read the language really in great quantities in order to be able to, to have that kind of um, the absorption of the language because we're not just talking about learning a few vocabulary words here and there, we're really talking about absorbing the language as a system, absorbing, for example, when the accusative is appropriate, when the ablative should be used. And that takes really a lot of exposure and a lot of, um, a lot of hearing the language, especially for the little ones. So this is why when we created the Latin program, we were really trying to have a lot of different, a lot of variety of materials so that they would hear the, the same structures in many different contexts in many different ways so that there is repetition without boredom so that there's always exposure to more language some elements of our curriculum are uh, for example things like songs and nursery rhymes and when you're singing something and you're singing not just declensions but you're singing actually meaningful things things that tell a little bit of a story things that maybe you already know in english like the itsy bitsy spider or mary had a little lamb um, you're not just learning the words, you are learning the structure of the language and you're absorbing uh, the structure of the language in really very meaningful ways and in ways that will just be imprinted on your brain in, in, in very meaningful ways. So I think the main principle for, for learning, for teaching 
Latin to young children is really the idea of using full, complete sentences in as many different contexts as possible through stories. You mentioned the Very Hungry Caterpillar, for example. Um, then we have songs that nursery rhymes. We also have uh, things like little mini stories. They are called the Gouin series because a, a French guy came up with this idea of having five to eight sentences that are connected and coherent that form a little mini story, basically, that they can act out while they say it. Um, but really, I think the most important thing for young children is just the idea of, of exposure to the language, not necessarily so much that they are able to, to repeat it back or to speak it, to create their own sentences, but really the idea of exposing them to the language, giving them that input in uh, applied linguistic terms that's often called a comprehensible input. Input is language that the student can understand that is meaningful to them, that they're interested in, and um, that they gradually absorb over a period of time. And it doesn't happen immediately. This is a long process. I think maybe one other problem <laughs> in the US is that people try to or really want immediate results. And maybe that's why the charts are so handy. You memorize a chart and then you have mm -hmm. learned it. You think you've learned it. Uh, acquiring a language is really different from learning, for example, what the accusative is. You can memorize the definition of the accusative. You can memorize the noun endings. Mm -hmm. But that doesn't mean you have actually acquired the accusative. You acquire the accusative by being exposed to many, many sentences that show you many different ways in which the accusative is used. And by understanding those sentences and um, interacting with those sentences in meaningful ways. Mm -hmm. Okay, Laura, this is where I think bringing the trivium in is going to be brilliant and it's going to help our listeners to understand the trivium. Trivium is the art of language. We think about art being a skill. So when we, when we think of the grammar part of the trivium, it is the art of imitating, gathering information, um, learning beauty and harmony and the essence of something. And imitating really well is a foundational part of the grammar, of the grammar art. And then um, in the dialectic and logic uh, phase of the trivium is the art of thinking, reasoning, um, understanding and developing the skills for communicating. And then rhetoric brings us into the art of communicating where we're applying the truth through creating and performing, um, made expressing and communicating this truth well. And so when I, when I remember looking at closely at, your, at the, this Latin curriculum, I was seeing trivium-based lessons here. They were walking through um, imitating, learning something new, learning harmony and beauty. And then they were having to experience the art of thinking and thinking through what they were learning and then expressing and communicating. So to me, I, I remember thinking when I was looking at it, oh, I see the trivium right here. So walk us through a lesson or you know, kind of the parts of a lesson in, 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 in the curriculum. Show, help our, our listeners hear sort of those steps of the trivium within, a, within, a, within one of your lessons. Okay, yes. Um, I think maybe first I should say that it isn't probably quite as neatly defined or neatly sure. um, structured in sure. terms of the trivium. And I think, I mean, that also goes back to the history of the trivium. It's not well, the trivium isn't always order. the right. Exactly. It's exactly. not. That's true. Yes. That's true. Yes. Um, yes. So, I mean, if we see the, the grammar part of the lesson, maybe as, as this idea of, of imitating and, and gathering knowledge. And um, uh, yeah, I would say that memorizing songs, memorizing hymns, um, memorizing nursery rhymes, that, that is definitely part of the, of the grammar phase of a lesson where students are, are absorbing, are exposed to the language, are imitating um, correct, beautiful language. Um, the dialectic and, and logic phase, we might say that that comes when we have, uh, we call this little Socratic talks where we have very uh, guided conversations that start out with just yes, no questions. Is, is this a dog? Yes, this is a dog, right? And then moving on towards slightly longer answers. So um, is this a dog or a cat? This is a cat. And then what is the dog doing? Is it running or sleeping? So you start with just yes, no, then moving into one word answers and then gradually going into 
longer responses, which would perhaps be more in the um, that rhetorical responses where they're actually producing an answer themselves. Um, again, I think this is not quite as, as neatly to be separated into these different, different categories. But those little conversations also make students aware of ways in which the language changes. If, um, if I talk about what the dog is doing, the form for dog has a different ending than what I, when, if I say that I'm calling the dog or I'm petting the dog. So they, uh, in those short conversations, we also draw attention to uh, elements of the language, such as um, verb, different endings of verbs. And even with young children, they, they notice that and they can learn and absorb that without needing to talk about uh, third person plural. And um, here we have the accusative, all of that. You can, you can talk about that in, in ways that is uh, appropriate for a child, but that is sort of an, a beginning uh, logic basically because they're starting to think about the language um, while also absorbing it. We do have some explicit grammar components in the curriculum that make all of this a little bit more explicit and that that, that introduces sometimes, but we really don't uh, recommend that for anyone under uh, third grade. So this is more for- And when you say grammar on, in this aspect, you mean grammar <laughs> as grammar learning as in, parts yes, of speech as in, and, right? Yes, explicit, explicit uh, grammar as an analytical grammar. So, so you do incorporate, yeah, I, I don't want our listeners to think that teaching grammar, <laughs> explicit grammar is something we're against. We definitely are for it, but we, we believe that the immersion approach first is what's best for children or, or best for learners, really. Yes, exactly. Because um, when you learn grammar based on something that you've already said and heard many times, it makes sense. You can see it in context and you understand mm -hmm. the difference between the sentence that I see the dog the dog is different than if I talk about something that the dog does, the form for dog is different. So um, here we, we um, apply the, the explicit grammar to something that they've already basically absorbed, that they've already acquired, something that they've been seeing and hearing and saying many, many times, so that we're really just making explicit uh, by using uh, terminology, explicit terminology. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um where, where can our listeners get more information about your curriculum, Laura? So we have some information on our uh, UD website. Uh, maybe I should add real quick that we're in the process of changing the name right now. It is still called Living Latin. We were asked to change the name. We're probably going to go with something like Storybook Latin. Um, so the link might, might also change for that reason. But right now it is still on the UD website. We could maybe provide a link in the, in the uh, notes here. Um, and maybe just about that name change real quick, the, the storybook, the idea is um, not just that there is a story or a coherent story, but that many elements in the curriculum are story-based. The songs tell a story, nursery rhymes tell a story, the picture books, the classical picture book that we use, of course, also tell stories. Um, so many of the, really all of the elements have the element of story. And I think that is also something that's really very fundamental, fundamentally human. We um, as human beings, we love stories. Uh, God talks to us in stories. Stories is something that also connects back to what we were saying earlier about getting children interested. That is what gets children interested. An interesting story gets you interested. Mm -hmm. Patrick, can you speak into this as well? I sure can. Adrian, have you ever met a elementary age student, a child who doesn't like animals? No. Neither have I. Right. And so <laughs> animals is a great subject to get elementary school students engaged in a topic, right? You can ask them what their favorite animal is. You can ask them to tell you a story about an animal. And so through a curriculum like Laura's, students early on are engaged with animals, parts of the body, uh, story frameworks so that they can speak about the things that are immediately around them. They can mm -hmm. tell their instructor, their teacher, or one another what their favorite animal is. They can perhaps even describe their imaginary animal. They can describe an, an imaginary animal as having five legs and two hands and three noses because these are the 
the elements of vocabulary that they're learning right up front instead of learning sword, uh, javelin, murder, <laughs> uh, cavalry. So those, th those are great things to learn if you want to read Caesar. But I don't know about you. I don't know too many third and fourth grade students who want to read Caesar, let alone Cicero. And so by introducing them to Latin through realia, through their immediate environs, it becomes much less intimidating. It, be, it is presented to the student as a real human language, as something normal, something enchanted, something special, right? something approachable. I love that. I love that. Yeah. Well, and I think this, um, what you were saying with every five-year-old is interested in animals. That's that's really important. And when we were first, Adrian, you might remember that when we were first dis discussing uh, this curriculum, developing this, uh, I think in an earlier draft, we were thinking about just having everyday life, everyday activities as the main focus of level one. But I really wanted to, to do animals because that is what children are so fascinated by. And even more so very often than just their mundane everyday lives, their school objects. I mean, come on, a bear is much more interesting than a book for a five-year-old or it's a true. pencil or the word for blackboard. So I think um, that that was one of the reasons why we decided to go with animals first, mm -hmm. because it is such an attractive topic for young children and then in the next level on the second level we do talk about the child's world and the everyday mm -hmm. world a, a little bit more which is also interesting to children to talk talk about that i think first sparking the interest with something that is that is uh, like animals something that outside their uh, themselves but that is still very interesting to them and that invites such imaginary ideas as what you just presented actually patrick i'm really grateful for that idea i need to integrate that <laughs> that's a wonderful game idea that you just had you know laura um could you tell our listeners a little bit about the pilot i'm pretty sure it's been piloted now for two years um and i know you're you're developing five levels or six levels of this latin program so You've got it as designed for K-5, but I, I recall that some schools were piloting the K version in maybe third grade, or, and also some school, some homeschoolers were also uh, piloting this for you. Can you tell us a little bit about the pilot and where the different levels could be incorporated if you're a first year um, school incorporating your, your curriculum? Yes, so level one is, Really, the main target audience is the very little ones, kindergartners through maybe second, third grade. But we did write it in a way that it would be, especially for homeschoolers, that it would be possible to use it with other grades as well, which is why we added in those explicit grammar um, components so that a family of homeschoolers with different age levels would be able to have all children um, work on the same or similar materials. So wait, we have a program here that is for schools and homeschoolers both, which is brilliant because <laughs> Hopefully, usually yes. you have a homeschool curriculum or a school-based curriculum, but this is something that can be used in either setting. It seems to it seems to be working well in, in either setting, yes. I mean, people get creative and do leave out things as needed. I mean, it is not something that you, you don't have to just follow it. You can get creative with it and, and leave things out, especially for older children. I think they're, for older children, there's probably a bit too much of a repetition of things like nursery rhymes and the very easy early picture books. So we recommend if anyone is using it for older children that they would just drop some of those and add in the grammar components instead of that. Um, because for the very young children, we have a lot of repetition, more repetition than would be needed for a fourth grader, for, for example. Um, but level one has been working well in our pilot all through kindergarten, from kindergarten through fifth grade. Like I said, again, with, with some modification for fourth and fifth graders. And then um, we are planning on having a total of six levels so that we would have something continuous from kindergarten through fifth grades that would take you all the way through elementary school, mm -hmm. something that gradually builds up. In level two, like I was saying, we are focusing on the child's everyday world throughout the season. So 
starting with like um, summer and fall, then winter, different activities associated with the seasons, different changes throughout the world and the natural world associated with the seasons. Again, always emphasizing this um, idea that I think um, Comenius brought that up a lot in his, I don't know if we mentioned his name before when we talked about the Renaissance. Mm-mm, we didn't. Um, okay, okay, so maybe I should go back a little bit here. He really wrote what I think many people consider the first picture book ever, um, and it is a, I think the first one was actually trilingual. Um, it often is published now in bilingual versions. Um, it is basically a picture dictionary, but it is so much better than a picture dictionary because it gives complete sentences. It has a picture and then there are numbers in the picture. And then below that are sentences that describe these pictures. And it goes through really the entire known world. It talks about um, the parts of the body, but not by labeling them, but by how they are connected. It talks about um, a, a natural scene, like a forest scene, by talking about um, the tree and leaves are growing, or mm. branches are growing on the tree, and then leaves are growing on the branches, and the leaves fall. So it, it talks about it in complete sentences, showing the children the natural world, and showing them in both languages, so and in two languages. In your curriculum, are you kind of imitating that model? So not directly, but um, he he was a great influence on the curriculum overall. Both this work, um, this this the Orbis Pictus, but then also his Didactica Magna. Uh, he talks about, talks about how the the study of language for the very young child should always be connected to concrete objects and to the objective world, so that they learn about the world while learning the language. And that's basically that is the underlying the main underlying idea of the curriculum that they. Um, are also always learning about the external world and learning interesting things about the external world while learning Latin. So they're not just, yeah. I love that. Well, we're going to be putting websites in the show notes from everything we've talked about here. And um, uh, Laura, if, if people listening are interested in buying the curriculum for this upcoming fall, is it going to be available? We hope so. We're hoping to, we are in the process of working with Sophia Institute Press, and I don't have any specifics yet um, that's still being developed, but we do hope to have it ready in the in the summer for purchase. Yes. And would it so be level, just, level one? Just level one. Okay, because you're still yes, piloting level one. We're still level piloting two. level two in this uh, coming year, yes. Okay, this is wonderful. Patrick, do you have anything you'd like to add as well before we uh, talk about our concluding question? <laughs> Well, certainly I would like to congratulate Laura on the, the progress toward and very near advent of her curriculum to the market. This is tremendous for homeschooling students as well as classical schools around the country, perhaps around the world. Uh, this is something to, to be applauded and I think it will find great success and may revolutionize Latin teaching in the elementary school years. Oh, thank you, Patrick. That's very kind of you. I believe so. And I want to encourage homeschool moms who don't know any Latin, you can do this program. I've looked at it. I over, I looked over it. I was like, I understand this. I could te- I could have taught this to my children. It, it's wonderfully, very well scripted and, and laid out. I should add that's that some point. people do get, sorry. <laughs> Go ahead. That's a great point to um, what I was saying earlier about parents investing themselves in learning the language. I, I, I failed at that time to, to, to mention that the parent doesn't need to become a, an accomplished classicist, does not need to become a master of Latin and Greek in order to instill this love in their children. Rather, uh, it's enough to spend some time in the evening with a, with a book in Latin or studying Latin on one's own simply to demonstrate the value of that object. Certainly, there are lots of goods to be got by studying Latin and reading great literature in Latin. But if the parent's object is to demonstrate to students, to children at home, how valuable an endeavor this is, uh, the goal doesn't need to be lofty. Uh, One doesn't need to hold oneself to the highest standards of mastery of the the subject matter. Uh, It's enough simply to, to appreciate the the subject in front of students. Mm-hmm. That's such a good point, Patrick. Yes. And I, I was going to mention some people do get a little bit overwhelmed because there is 
a lot of Latin <laughs> in this book. So um, yeah, people do get overwhelmed by the amount of, of Latin that they're supposed to be mastering. And I think that's a really great point, Patrick, to bring up that it, it they don't have to master everything. Just learning along with the children and being willing to just immerse yourself and, and to try and learn along with your child and to not feel intimidated. I think that's probably one of the most important messages. In our very first pilot, the um, Adrian, you, you might remember her, one of the teachers was a Spanish teacher who was asked to switch to Latin and to teach Latin. And she was really our probably best pilot participant. Oh, yes, I do remember. She just jumped in and she was so enthusiastic about learning Latin and about learning along with the kids. And she got these kids so excited and so enthusiastic about learning Latin. They were loving it and she was having a blast too. And she was constantly asking me questions about things. But yeah, I mean, just demonstrating that enthusiasm, that goes a long way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this is great. Well, let me close, we always close our podcast asking our, um, our guests a concluding question. So I'm gonna ask you two questions and you can choose to answer one. Um, so what is a quote from a book that has had a huge impact on you or what book do you wish you had read sooner in your life? Okay, can I answer what book has had a great influence on my life? Sure, sure, and, sure. And thereby a recommendation to audience members. Uh, <laughs> Vic, Victor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning. It's a book I come back to many times in life, especially at crisis points in my life as a, a recentering technique on what's most important in my life. Mm-hmm. And uh, never has it failed me to bring me back to the meaning of my life and its its goals, it, its aspirations. Okay, thank you, Patrick. Laura? Well, I'll go with the second one then. Um, and I will have to admit that I had not read in my childhood, I had read The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, but I did not even know about the other Narnia books. I did not grow up with the other Narnia books. So looking back, I, I so wish... I had read these books earlier in my life. I read them for the first time with my children, um, the, the remaining books. And yeah, I mean, that was <laughs> quite an experience. And I, I really wish I had I had read this early in my life, especially the last one, The Last Battle. That, that's probably also a book that's made a huge impact on me, in, um, especially in uh, yeah thinking about my faith. That's great. All right. Thank you so much, both of you, for uh, being on the show and... I look forward to uh, following up with you, Laura, on the success of your curriculum. Uh, thank you, Adrian. Thank you for having Adrian, us. thank you for having us. Yes, thank you. Thank you so much for listening. We invite you to experience the art of teaching through interactive learning communities at our Patreon page. Visit patreon.com forward slash classical education. Also, be sure to join the conversation on our Facebook community at facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash classical education. We are a listener supported podcast, so your support makes this podcast possible. As the great artist and educator John Ruskin once wrote, well, my friends, the final result of the education I want you to give your children will be in a few words this. They will know what it is to see the sky. They will know what it is to breathe it. And they will know best of all what it is to behave under it as in the presence of a father who is in heaven.